This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome to the programme. Thanks for joining us and I hope our discussion will be of some benefit to you. We're discussing an ancient commentary by Namka Pell titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. And when I say commentary, I mean it literally. In this text, the author is commenting on another text titled The Seven Points of Mind Training. We've come to the section on the commitments of mind training, which the original Seven Points text gives variously in verse and as maxims. And as I said last time, in the translation there doesn't seem to be much difference, but we're not going to let that bother us here. The verse that we got to last time was trained consistently to deal with difficult situations. And if you were with us, you will remember that Namkapal lists five particularly different situations we have to watch out for. First involves getting angry with people karmically very close to us, like parents, spiritual teacher, one's abbot and so on. He says that losing our temper with them is extremely serious. Then we also have to be careful with those with whom we live, particularly members of the family, because we are in their face all the time, as they are in ours, so it's easy for us to rub each other up the wrong way. Thirdly, Namkapal writes, we must also be very mindful around people we regard as our rivals, because even when a small bad situation happens to them, we might feel some happiness or satisfaction. The next point concerns those who accuse us of doing something we've not done. Here Namkapal claims that if we're always finding someone else to blame, we will strengthen the hatred in our hearts and whatever compassion we have will dry up. And then lastly, it comes to the people we dislike, even though they may have not done anything to us. They are easy to get angry with or to criticize. So those are the five difficult situations, and you might have realized that they all involve other people. Namkapel doesn't make a point about situations involving inanimate objects because it's foolish to be angry with something that has no mind to act in one way or the other. So the difficult situations all involve other beings, and particularly those we have some kind of close connection with, either positive or negative. Last time we looked a little bit at the first situation, getting upset with parents and so on, and ended the program with a personal account of Michael Sosnowski, who learned to overcome his hatred of his parents through a process of forgiveness. He personally found, and here I quote, anger and hatred mainly affect the person holding them because they are the one who destroys their life and relationship because of it. You don't forgive for others' sake, you forgive for your own. When I realized this, I started on the long journey that is forgiveness. I wish I could say it's like the movies, but it isn't, at least not in my experience. I have found that forgiveness takes continual effort over weeks, sometimes months. It is something you have to consciously time your anger arises. Your anger and hatred fade away over time as you consciously reframe your thoughts and feelings to ones of forgiveness. So, and what did the Buddha say? Anger is like holding a burning coal in your hand intending to throw it at your enemy. It won't harm your enemy as much as it burns you. Sosnowski was able to work through his issues himself and come to a much more balanced relationship with his parents. But do all of us have the ability to do that? 
Perhaps if we understand the long-term effects of holding grudges against our parents, we will be pushed to make efforts to try a little forgiveness and understanding. After all, as we said last week, our conditioning as Westerners does not emphasize the importance of the kindness of the parents as the Buddha and his society so obviously did. And although it's changing, filial gratitude and obedience is still often seen as extremely important in countries of the East, even to the point that a child does not question what a parent dictates, even if the child finds it highly uncomfortable. Perhaps as Westerners, we've moved too much in the opposite direction and can move back a bit for more healthy and harmonious relationships with our parents. The Buddha said anger and ingratitude towards one's parents leads to very serious repercussions in both this and coming lives. But now let's take a look at some of the modern research on sitting on anger against our parents. On the website www.greatergood.barclay.edu there's an article titled The Cost of Blaming Parents by Dr. Joshua Coleman, who's co-chair of the Council on Contemporary Families and a psychologist with a private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, Carolyn Pape Cowan, adjunct professor of psychology emerita at the University of California, Berkeley, and Philip A. Cohen, Professor of Psychology Emeritus at the same university. But before we go into that, let's take a moment to set our motivation as usual. If you were with us for the last program, remember what we said about motivation, and let's all try to set the best motivation possible. The intention to make this program a cause to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Failing that, at least your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now back to the cost of blaming parents. The authors open the article with a visit to Sigmund Freud. They write, At the close of the 19th century, Freud theorized that, like the mythical Greek king of Thebes, a child unconsciously wants to kill off his father so that he can have sex with his mother. He believed one of the main functions of psychoanalysis was to bring anger towards the parent into conscious awareness, and that this would free the client from symptoms. Today, only a minority of psychotherapists still believe in the centrality of the Oedipus complex, or its female version Electra, the mythological woman made famous by Sophocles and Euripides for plotting revenge against her mother. Yet a focus on anger towards one's parents is still at the heart of many insight-oriented psychotherapies. As psychologists and researchers, we think the emphasis on supporting ongoing anger and blame of parents is a problem in today's psychotherapy and in the culture at large. Validating feelings and perceptions can be a helpful, even necessary early step in healing from a difficult childhood. Learning how to shift from self-blame to rightful anger at our parents can be a useful second step. What concerns us, based on the research on attachment in family relationships as it spans several generations, is how stopping at this second step may worsen the relationship with the parent and harm the long-term best interests of the individual and the extended family. We believe that a new therapeutic frame to respond to adult children's anger at their parents may be more beneficial in the long run to the adult child, the parent and the grandchildren. 
The same new frame is needed for those of us, clients or not, who hold, hold firmly to the notion that parents are to blame for many psychological difficulties. Our goal here is to describe some discoveries from attachment theory that may help therapists, clients and others understand why it may be helpful to get beyond anger at your parents. We are not suggesting the currently popular strategies of let it go and move on or forgiveness, however useful they can be. Rather, we argue for the value of arriving at a fuller understanding of why our parents behaved as they did, so that we can avoid becoming trapped in old patterns and repeating hurtful relationship patterns in the next generation. One of the biggest dangers of carrying chronic feelings of anger towards a parent lies not simply in what it does to the relationship between us and our parents, but how it might affect our relationships with an intimate partner or our own children. Our own and other studies support the theories of John Bowlby, who argued that infants or young children who never felt securely attached to one or both parents can carry deep-seated insecurities into adulthood about whether they deserve to be loved or nurtured. This insecurity can have a profound impact on that person's ability to love and parent. In other words, the opportunity to be securely attached as a child affects not only that child's feeling of security and well-being, but his or her ability later in life to foster a secure attachment in his or her child. In our longitudinal family studies, we looked at parents' attachment stories and then at how teachers described their children's behavior at school. We found that children with parents whose relationship could be characterized as insecure in relation to their parents, the grandparents, were more likely to be angry and aggressive with peers or shy, withdrawn, anxious or depressed, or both angry and anxious. They were also less likely to do well academically. How does this happen? Our research demonstrates that an insecure attachment seems to result in children and later adults having difficulty controlling or modulating their emotions, knowing how to soothe themselves when distressed or feeling relaxed and trusting with others, and this in turn was reflected in what we saw in their relationships with their partners and children. Parents were often unable to see their own contributions to distress and conflict in their key relationships. In all likelihood, these difficulties emerge from not having had a nurturing parent, not feeling lovable, and not learning how to accept or nurture themselves. When the client becomes conscious of this dynamic, it is natural to feel angry with a parent. But how do we move from anger, self-blame, and an insecure model of close relationships to a more tolerant, compassionate view of our up upbringing? That is, how can we achieve a more hopeful model of what we can expect to work towards in our close relationships? And why should anyone bother? It's common for a therapist to support or encourage an adult's anger at his or her parents for their behavior in the past, based on the idea that getting in touch with and expressing the anger will help the client move away from self-blame and towards better mental health. However, the client's relationship with the therapist may be more disempowering than empowering over time if the therapist continues to support the idea that the client has to aggressively fight back against the reality or the memory, if the parent is no longer alive, of a formidable father or mother. 
rather than to see the parent as someone with his or her own fragilities, insecurities and longings. This is important to consider because when adults hold on to negative feelings about early relationships, it can reinforce their self-view as a victim and leave them unable to take action to establish intimate relationships that are satisfying, trusting or at least not harmful. Without some prodding, a client could also conclude that avoidance rather than a repair of a relationship with a parent is the only choice. While ending a relationship with a parent may sometimes be the healthiest decision, it isn't always. In stopping at supporting a client's anger at a parent, some therapists may foreclose the possibility that the parent might still be able to provide some of what the adult child longs for and needs, even if it plays out more in the grandchild-grandparent relationship. Although many writers who talk about attachment write as if the model is formed early and stamped in as a template forever, the data doesn't support this. Models of attachment can change over time as more nurturing or satisfying relationship experiences nudge us towards a feeling of increased ease, trust and confidence about developing satisfying intimate relationships, what some call earned security. This may happen when a romantic partner's style shows how a more accepting stance can feel nurturing or when a more responsive relationship with a caring adult, therapist, mentor, teacher or friend reveals that it is possible to find more caring, supportive and satisfying close relationships. In general, we can't forgive our parents until we have some clarity that we didn't deserve their mistreatment. It is equally important to realize that in the world of the family, traumas often beget traumas. Most parents who mistreat their children were likely also mistreated. In order to break this sad cycle, a goal might be to see one's parents not only as neglectful or hostile, but as ill-equipped to create the kind of family environment that fosters confidence and secure attachments. The notion that parents did the best they could may seem negating for those who, who already feel impoverished and undeserving. But moving towards that perspective, rather than holding on to long-term or newly found anger, has three potentially productive outcomes. First, some adults can successfully establish a more satisfying relationship with their parents, in-laws or extended family members rather than having to remove themselves from any relationships with their extended family. Second, for some adults, this stance can lead to setting reasonable limits for a relationship with a parent who continues to be abusive instead of continuing to carry ongoing feelings of anger that infect other aspects of life. Third, gaining a more differentiated view of why parents behaved as they did can help us avoid repeating the cycle of insecure attachments with our partners and children. In turn, this may foster the possibility of our parents and children developing a relationship across the generations as we form new families of our own, thus offering our children relationships in their extended family. It takes psychological effort to go from anger to understanding and to nurture the insight that what feels intentional isn't always so. This is true whether or not one is receiving help from a professional. It also demands developing more immunity to a parent's perceptions and behaviours, a process that signifies growth and makes us more resilient both in our family relationships 
and in confronting life's challenges. Developing compassion for parents, intimate partners and friends is useful, not only because it makes us more compassionate people, but because it allows us to see others' frailties, to recognize sometimes bungled attempts to care for us, and eventually to love more fully and be more open to being loved by others. While many people find that this is one of the hardest tasks to accomplish, with or without professional help, some are lucky enough to discover that it is freeing in ways they hadn't imagined, and that the world seems a more welcoming place in which to live and love. And that seems to corroborate the Buddha's message that understanding, loving-kindness and compassion are amongst the best healers we have. Included in the article is a sidebar with some points on how to achieve the understanding that leads to greater compassion. The authors say that through therapy or other intimate experiences, a shift from an insecure to a secure attachment model is more likely to happen when we can 1. Work towards accepting the reality of having been denied important attachment experiences by parents or other caregivers. 2. Mourn that in all likelihood we will not be nurtured by our parents in the ways we had hoped. 3. Develop insight into how we developed self-limiting beliefs as a way to stay close to a parent, however painful or problematic that attachment has been. 4. Shift over time from a position of feeling victimized by a parent to seeing that the parent's inability to provide more nurturance probably resulted from the parent's own early deprivation, rather than from an unwillingness, selfishness or desire to see her suffer. 5. Accept that because of important experiences and disappointments with a caregiver, we may experience a lifelong vulnerability to emotional triggers around rejection, devaluation or ne neglect with an understanding that we can reduce our sensitivity over time, even if it never goes away completely. And six, evaluate whether a new relationship with a parent is possible. So that's the cost of blaming parents. And now let's visit a Buddhist meditator's view of how to reconcile with one's parents. See if you can find the similarities with what the authors of this article have described. The following story comes from the teachings of one of my favorite teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh. It can be found on plumvillage.org and is a transcription of a teaching by the great master on how suffering can teach us. In the teaching, he talks about how easy it is for a father to damage a child through ignorance. He talks about a question and answer session in which a friend had asked him about expressing emotions, particularly anger. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh says. The friend who asked me that question began by saying that if he tries to be calm, his child continues to be nervous. But if he begins to shout, then his child gets quiet and calm. I did not have the chance to address his question, this approach. I only told him, well, you shout and then your little boy gets calm and doesn't disturb you anymore, and you believe that it works. But if you look deeply into it, maybe it would not work in the future because by shouting like that, your child might get an internal formation, a wound within himself, and later on, maybe communication between you and him will become difficult. So we cannot say that it works. It may work for one moment, but it may cause damage in the future. Thich Nhat Hanh continues, 
I said that when you shout, your shouting may come from love or might come from irritation. There is a difference. When you shout with irritation in you, that will create some negative things in you and also in your child. You have to measure the consequence of that. You cannot say that because you shout like that, he accepts to become calm for a moment and you think it's a good way to proceed. There are many cases where a son or daughter cannot communicate to a father. Communication is just impossible because maybe the father has been using his authority a little bit too much. The father has to learn how to deal with the little boy or the little girl as a friend. He needs to practice forbearance, patience. He needs to practice loving kindness, even with his little boy or little girl. He needs to learn how to manage his irritation, his anger. A lot of tragedy has resulted from the way fathers and mothers deal with their children. When there's a fight between parents and children, the losers are very often the children because the children don't have the right to respond to their parents the way their parents do. They cannot use the same kind of language or reaction. Because they are at the mercy of their parents, financially and in every aspect, they have to depend on their parents. That is why when their parents express their anger, the children have to receive the violence and they have no means to get it out, to express it, to transform it. If the parents don't know how to transform their violence, then the children will not know how to transform theirs either because they have not learnt anything from their parents. When children have become victims of the violence brought on them by parents, they suffer and they don't know what to do. That violence within them becomes a poison that continues to kill them. If these young people try to kill themselves, it's mostly because they want to retaliate against their parents. By killing themselves, they want to send a message to their parents. You know, I'm killing myself because of you. You made me suffer so much, and this is the fruit of your, be of your behavior, your way of dealing with me. So, when a young man or young woman commits suicide, there's always that kind of message, direct to parents or society or someone else, because the violence in him or her has no way to be transformed. Thich Nhat Hanh also talks about a young man who came to a retreat in which one session involved writing a letter to one's parents. He says, There was a young man who came to the upper hamlet, I think about eight or ten years ago, who was given that kind of practice because he hated his father. He could not bear the thought of thinking and writing a letter to his father. At that time, all the monks and nuns and lay people received the assignment of writing a letter, a love letter, to his or her father or mother. For him, to write a letter to his mummy might be possible, but not to his daddy. Although his daddy already had passed away, he still could not reconcile with him. He just could not think of his father. He considers his father as the main source of his suffering. There are many men and women like that around us. Now, instead of trying to coerce the letter out of the young man, Thich Nhat Hanh gave him the exercise of thinking of his father as a five-year-old boy with this mantra on the breath. Breathing in, I see my father as a five-year-old boy. Breathing out, I smile to that five-year-old boy that my father was. Thich Nhat Hanh goes on to say, Maybe you have not had a chance to see your father as a little boy, but before he became an adult, he was a little boy, very fragile, very vulnerable also. Suddenly, that fragile image of your father comes to you and you see that he's no different from you. 
He was also as vulnerable as you, as fragile as you. He may be a victim of your grandpa. Every time his father shouted at him, every time his father looked at him with a stern look, he got a wound in his heart just like you. He didn't know how to transform that, so he was repeating the same kind of thing with you. That's what we call the wheel of samsara, the vicious circle transmitted from father to son, from son to grandson. The violence we received, we don't know how to transform. And even if we hate our father, if we promised ourselves that when we grow up we will do entirely differently from our father, we will repeat the same. We will do exactly the way our father has done to us. That is the wheel of samsara. I've seen many young men who are very determined that they will do the opposite of their father. But when they grow up, get married and have children, they do exactly the same. The whole habit energy, the transmission, the samsara. So if you are touched by the Dharma, you have an instrument to cut through the wheel of samsara. You end the samsara and you will not transmit that violence to the next generation. Thich Nhat Hanh says that breathing meditation on the father like that is looking deeply and allowing the nectar of compassion to be born in one's heart. One can understand and even sympathize with the father. He goes on, Fathers always have the tendency to love and make their children happy. That tendency is deep, it is natural. But because they have not learned the way to love properly, the way to handle their violence and anger, they have not been able to express their true love and they have inflicted a lot of suffering on their children. We cannot say that there is no love in them. We can only say that the love in them has no way to be expressed. If we can begin to understand this, our heart will begin to open, and suddenly we can breathe and we can survive because a drop of nectar of compassion is already born in our heart. We no longer want to blame because we have touched his or her suffering. We know that he does not need punishment, he needs help. During his lifetime, no one has been able to help him to transform his violence and his anger. He's not had a teacher, a Dharma brother or sister. And if I had not had a teacher, a brother or sister in the Dharma, I would have done like him, you see. So no blaming is possible now. Only compassion is the answer. So suddenly, you're on your cushion and you feel that you can breathe, you can survive, and you can continue to practice. Breathing in, I see my father as a suffering child. Breathing out, I embrace my father with my compassionate smile. This is very healing, very nourishing. The young man placed on his table a picture of his father. He had asked for a picture of his father to be sent from America, then he placed that on his desk. Every time he went out of his room, he stopped by the door, looked into his father's eyes and began to breathe in and out and visualize his father as a little boy. Every time he went into his room, he turned on the light on the table, looked at that picture and practiced breathing in and out. A few weeks later, he was able to sit down and write a letter, the assignment. We call it a love letter, the first love letter, and he succeeded in writing the letter. Writing a letter like that untied a lot of bondage in him because of the nectar of compassion that had been born in his heart. Your heart suddenly expands. There is now a lot of space and you can bear the injustice quite easily because you have an amount of understanding, of compassion that can digest, that can transform. And with that, 
Our time is now up and we must say farewell. Have a wonderful week and as you go, please dedicate our time together to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you always. Thanks and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.